Hello, this is Leslie Groff at Tenzer. Well, we're back. Starting August 31st, we will have all new episodes of Legal Tenzer. And the good news is they will remain available for free. In the meantime, we're bringing back some old episodes for you to listen to. Here's an episode with Professor Dan Croxell about the law of craft beer. As always, if you like our podcast, please subscribe, rate us, and all that other good stuff. And if you have any topics you'd like us to talk about or professors with whom you'd like us to speak, email us at legaltenser at westacademic.com. Enjoy this episode. Hello, this is Leslie Garfoot Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. Today I'm speaking with Professor Dan Croxell, who created and teaches the world's first craft beer law class at a law school. I have to confess that I didn't even know that craft beer law was a thing, but it is, and as Professor Croxell explains, it has many different tentacles. There are implications in the First, 18th, and 21st Amendments, contract law, trademark law, just to name a few. I learned so much in this conversation, including a surprise revelation about the craft beer displayed in the supermarket. Here's my discussion with Professor Croxell. Thank you so much for joining me. I, you know, it's interesting. I know nothing about craft beer other than what it tastes like. Uh-huh. Um, and so I wouldn't think that that would be something that would demand its own legal area of the law. So I, I guess we'll get right into it. Just tell me a little bit about this. <laughs> yeah, it's a much bigger area than I would have thought. Um, I'll tell you really briefly the way it started and, and, how, and how it developed into kind of its own little area. I was litigating at, a, at this giant law firm, uh, not generally enjoying my life. And I got a call from my brother and he said, hey, I want to open a brewery in L.A. And since I was, you know, Mr. Big Litigator Man, I was like, oh, yeah, I can help you with that on the weekends. And when I opened the book, it was the most complex, complicated, archaic area of the law that I'd ever seen. Uh-huh. And it's nearly impossible for somebody to get open without legal training because the, the law was created basically in the 30s after prohibition. So it's just not designed for today's market. And um, is, is, is craft beer law, is the regulation of craft beer the same as regulation of any alcohol? No, that's, oh. that's the other point. Um, wine, liquor and beer are all regulated differently among the states. And it's a huge mess because the 21st Amendment left it to the states to regulate. So every state's laws are different and every state's laws are overly complex. And it just raises a ton of inconsistency and uh, really, frankly, very interesting areas to explore. How does Michigan do it differently than California? And the differences can be quite, quite important. Hmm. All right. So, so, no, no, no. I was going to say, so tell me, what do you, what do you cover? What do you, what, like, what should we know if we want to practice? Could we say practice craft beer law? Is that absolutely? Yeah. I used to represent, I used to only represent breweries when I had my own firm. Um, What do you need to know? First and foremost, you need to be an expert on your, on your state's uh, regulations, which like I said, are very kind of complex and archaic. And we can get into that later if you like, but they are, they are um, difficult to follow in a lot of cases. So that that's kind of primary, but there are a lot of other areas that are directly related. So lots of constitutional law issues, right? The 21st Amendment, the 18th Amendment, there's a lot of First Amendment issues that come up because the government regulates what you can and can't say um, as an alcohol manufacturer. Uh, so commercial speech doctrine and those kinds of things. Uh, there's a ton of trademark law. As you might have noticed, if you if you follow craft beer at all, you see um, you know labels that contain potentially confusing um images etc so trademark law is a big one employment law another one because when anytime you mix alcohol and and um, you know typically younger people working in the workplace you might have problems there so it, it's a really wide-ranging practice area 
and uh, you kind of have to be, you know, fluent in, in several different areas. So I want to pick your brain about a couple of things. I mean, I'm a law huh? professor, so I'll ask you a few hypotheticals. Sure. Um, what if a 17-year-old is working part-time at a brewery? Can a 17-year-old work part-time at a brewery? Uh, no, an 18 or 19 year old, <laughs> 17 year old. No, uh, 18 or 19 year old could work at a restaurant if they serve food, but okay. not a brewery. Um, so that's the kind of thing that that can uh, be distinguished from state to state. But the, the you have to be 21 to work in a brewery in most states because they're not most of them aren't serving food at the production facility. So it, but like I said, if you're 18, you can certainly be a waiter or waitress right. at, a, at a restaurant. But what I mean, so. If you think about labor, right? Like let's say someone works at a brewery in the accounting department or something like that, mm -hmm. right? Like what's the theory behind not allowing them to work in a brewery? So uh, I, I might've taken your question wrong. I, I assume that you were meet, you meant- uh, oh, they were working testing. With, <laughs> working with and or uh, serving right. alcohol. Right. Um, I'm not aware of a restriction if somebody was um, doing payroll or something uh, for, the, for an LLC typically is what the business entity is. Um, I was speaking more front of the house. Uh, right. So like if they're in, if, you know, if they're the kind of people that have to like cover their hair and get right their hands <laughs> into the hops right. kind of thing. That or, uh, you know, in some cases that that would be allowed too in oh. different, different states because uh, it can be serving an educational purpose. So I, I'm aware of, of some uh, minors who have had internships at when I say minors in this case, I mean, under 21. Right. who have had internships at different breweries and some schools uh, offer, you know, viticulture majors even for undergrads who probably aren't 21. So they can work in that context. But when it comes to serving and distributing alcohol to patrons, that's 21 and over. I see. Okay. Got it. What, what, what states have the least restrictive? I mean, do the, do the, do alcohol restrictions vary significantly from state to state or at least craft beers restrictions and if so, does it tend to go along political lines, blue states being more liberal with their, you know, access to alcohol kind of thing? Yes, yes, I think you can kind of go with that. Um, kind of the, the most beer friendly state uh, in most areas, not all, in most areas is probably California. It's also the largest beer market. Um, we have several kind of privileges here in Cal breweries have privileges here that not, they don't have in all other states. Uh, one example is, selling direct to the consumer in the tap room. So if you have a manufacturing facility, you can also have essentially a, what you might call a bar, but it's not a bar, um, but you can sell directly to the consumer. And that's very important to small breweries because the distribution avenue, which is the other way to go, you know, getting it out to grocery stores and getting it out to other bars is completely dominated by large distribution interests and large distribution interests are only concerned about uh, moving volume. And so small little craft breweries don't even get their attention. And there's lots of things we can talk about about distribution contracts. They are they are their own thing and they're a total mess in the alcohol world. Huh. But so that's one example of what California allows that not all states do. All, and also California would allow self-distribution. A lot of states are now getting on board with that where you don't have to go through a distributor. Um, other states require you to go through a distributor uh, anytime that you sell alcohol um, outside of outside of your um, your premises, if they allow it. So California, if you own a brewery, you don't have to go through a distributor. You can just take it and deliver it yourself. And, and that can be very helpful for small breweries who are just getting out of the gate. Because if you're a brand new brewery, you know, a distributor is not going to be interested in you because you have no track record of success or, or a following. So that's another kind of little example that uh, California has given. And I'll give one more and I'll, I'll stop talking about our benefits oh, here. But really um, 
the next one is that um, you're allowed up to six duplicate licenses mm-hmm. um, in California. So a duplicate license, you get a what's called a type 23. You can make beer on that premise, but um, you can also have six other licensed premises where you can sell your own beer. You just can't manufacture there, but not all states allow that, right? So some states say, no, you can only make it and sell it in one location. Um, but again, California is kind of ahead of the game a little bit on that front. So, you know, I'm not a big beer drinker, so my ignorance is going to show. But, you know, I, I I can think of my local supermarket, which prides itself, or even Trader Joe's, on having all these different IPA and craft breweries. Are they really tied to a bigger distribution? I mean, if, you know, it's not like they're just selling at the farmer's market, right? right? Like, are, I mean, so is it kind of a scam? I think I'm supporting this local mom and pop, but they're really tied to a bigger distributor. 100%. Um, <gasps> <laughs> so here's the thing. Wow. My father-in-law, who's a really great guy, um, you know, might call me and say, hey, come over for a barbecue. I got some really great craft beer and I'll go over to a barbecue and I'll see the brand. And what has happened over time is big beer. I mean, there's yeah. like four or five really big breweries and you can think of who they are. Menu, international corporations, you know, they have purchased um, formerly craft breweries, meaning formerly kind of independent breweries and kind of made them their own. And so they have, through their big distribution channels, have flooded the shelves with beer that's actually made in Budweiser um, um, fermenters and called it, you know, craft beer. And if you look at the sign at your grocery store that says craft beer, I'm willing to bet a full 70% of them are actually owned by AB InBev, Miller Coors, Heineken, or Constellation Brands. So a lot of people are really fooled by that. And I I argue, and actually one of my law review articles that it's a it's a pretty significant confusion that they've intentionally engaged in. Now on the distribution side, so that's that's what Big Beer has done. They've purchased a bunch of craft breweries and air quotes and made them their own and not told anyone or you know not been very vocal about the fact that it's not an independent brewery, it's not a mom and pop, and they try to push it off as such. But again, on the distribution side, distributors make their money on volume. So if a brewery sells a distributor beer, the distributor is going to make 30% off that packaged item, whatever, if you want to look at it in four packs or kegs, the distributor gets 30%. So the distributor is really truly only concerned with moving high volume products Mm -hmm. because the small mom and pop one is really small. They might move, you know, a hundred cases a month at the most um, where they're moving, you know, 10,000 cases of of a big name brand. So don't be fooled by the uh, local grocery market or grocery store that's telling you you're buying mom and pop when you probably aren't. It's kind of like the word organic, right? A little bit like, yeah. I mean, that, that actually, that's, that's a revelation for me about that. Whole <laughs> wow, Very much there's something same. new on every podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I think along the lines of organic, you know, the term craft is dead. Uh, I almost wish it's dead. it has basically been bought and sold as the, as I described. Okay. Got um, it. Okay. There's no universal definition, really. The Brewers Association defines it as uh, small meaning less than 6 million barrels. And 6 million barrels is, is an unholy amount of beer. It's um, roughly 12 million kegs worth, but it allows for some of the larger independent um, breweries to stay within the definition of craft. Um, they don't allow ownership by someone who's involved in, on the big beer side of things. So small and independent are kind of the, the hallmarks of what we would consider craft, but there's no agreed upon term. So it could make it especially hard to litigate. So if a client came to you and said, I want to open up my own craft brewery, I want to, you know, I have these great hops and Mm -hmm. I have this cool idea. Mm -hmm. What would you say to your client? Wow. 
I would uh, produce a large checklist of things that we have to get going right away. <laughs> um, it's an interesting problem you have because you have to get licensed by both the state and the federal government, the TTB, who manages, they want their taxes. But you can't really do those until you have a premise. So <laughs> you have to secure a location with the hopes that things are going to go smoothly on the licensing side. And you have to start at, a, at the same time, you have to start the process with the state to become a, a manufacturer and with the, the federal government, which requires what's called a brewer's notice. So um, you would have to do that immediately. And that process can take from, you know, quite a while. You might run into local governance issues. Uh, you might get some protests from people in the neighborhood, that kind of thing. There's always a parking issue. If, if you don't have appropriate parking, you're gonna, you're gonna face a problem with local authorities on that. Water use, of course, is another one. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's more than just a, I got a great idea. Let's do it. It's gotta be well thought out and well-funded. Wow. I mean, that's interesting. Like it's kind of the chicken and the egg. You got to, we have to have it before you can get approval. And if you don't have yes. approval, you can't do it. Yep. So talk to me about a little bit about the first amendment issues that are involved in all of this, because I do yeah. remember, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. Remember back in the seventies, I'm dating myself when all of a sudden you weren't allowed to advertise, well, you couldn't advertise cigarettes and I think alcohol, right? Weren't there? I think that came about then, but I could be wrong. I don't know. No, I think you're right about that. Um, you, beer obviously is advertised like crazy. Um, right. Like the, the Super first, Bowl is this weekend. So <laughs> right, you're gonna, we're going to yeah. <laughs> see a lot of that. Um, right. It comes up in, in two spots. So, so the first is what you're allowed to say. Um, and I'll give you a small example. Most states don't allow a manufacturer to give a retailer a thing of value. That's a that's a term of art, a thing of value. And it means basically what it says. If it's worth anything, the retailer is not allowed to give that to, excuse me, the wholesale, the manufacturer is not allowed to give that to the retailer. There's this whole system called the three-tier system that's designed to keep the manufacturer, the distributor, and the retailer separate, free of undue influence. So you're not allowed to give free stuff. But it comes up in things like social media. If you say, hey, go get my new beer at Dan's bar, that would likely be deemed a thing of value. And so you can't you can't say it um, because it's free advertising. Hmm. So, you know, we see some, there have been some challenges on that under the central Hudson test of like intermediate scrutiny and, and whether it should be intermediate scrutiny or should it be strict scrutiny? Um, and it depends on whether the court's gonna come down and tell us that it's commercial speech or not. But um, those are kind of some of the things that that you have to worry about. Um, what constitutes a thing of value? Uh, what can you say in your advertisements? There's very specific limitations about what you can say. You can't say how strong it is in most cases. You can't mislead consumers into getting in any kind of strength war with another manufacturer or, or things like that. So, you know, it can be it can be quite uh, First Amendmenty, for lack of a better term. <laughs> That's great. Can you think? Have any cases made it? You know, maybe up to the circuit courts, or I, I or and then I, I don't know, the Supreme Court on this issue that deals yeah. with beer per se. Yeah. What would be some example of that? Yeah, there was one in the '80s called Act Media out of the Ninth Circuit um, about uh, whether a brewer could pay a, a retailer for advertising um, okay. from the Ninth Circuit, and the answer to that question was no, um, because that would be a thing of value. <laughs> And so retail or manufacturers are not allowed to go to a grocery store or a bar and say, hey, I'll give you, I don't know, $1,000 a year if you put my sign up. That's prohibited uh, in most states. And so that case went up to the Ninth Circuit. It was kind of a complex scenario where Coors was advertising kind of on display uh, in shopping carts and, and in shopping carts mostly. 
And then they were paying back the grocery store a percentage of the increased profits that they received ostensibly based on the advertising. And the court said, no, you can't do that because it's a thing of value. So paying for advertising is, is no good. And then it came up kind of again in a case um, from, from again in the Ninth Circuit, and, I'm, and the name is escaping me, but it, the question there was whether um, that kind of speech is subject to intermediate scrutiny under the central Hudson analysis or whether it's subject to strict scrutiny. Uh, the court referred to what it called heightened scrutiny, but didn't say which level it was. Yeah. And so that's still kind of an, an open question in my little world about whether it's, is it going to be considered content-based and therefore strict scrutiny, or is it truly commercial speech? So those kinds of things yeah. have been litigated. It's really interesting because when you think about content-based speech and you think about strict scrutiny, you think about things like affirmative action or yes. you, know, you don't think about alcohol or beer. So, um, and I guess that has roots back into the prohibition era. You know, one thing that that I wonder is, I've always heard that like Nabisco or some of those companies pay for where their products are on the shelves, right? Mm -hmm. So you yeah, can't- it's called, slot, it's called slotting fees. Slotting and, fee, and you can't, can you not have that either in beer? No, you're not, that'd be considered a thing of value. So, what, don't think so they, what's, I'm sorry. I was gonna say, don't think they don't do it though. I mean, if you okay. just Google online, beer pay to play, you will be inundated with um, stories. The Boston had a huge problem with that a few years ago. Um, it happens all the time in this industry. It's just, it's not enforced because the regulatory agencies, the alcohol control boards just don't have enough human power to do that really because they're mostly focused on keeping alcohol out of the hands of minors and alcohol out of the hands of problem drinkers. So the, the kind of trade practices side of it gets a little bit less attention. And so it's been taken advantage of by groups that have lots of money. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like a, like a small example, you know, distributor or a, or a big beer type might go to a restaurant and order the cheeseburger and have a beer for $15 and then leave a $500 tip with the wink, wink, nod, nod kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That happens regularly. There's a story out of LA where Anheuser-Busch was busted for giving away TVs and refrigeration units, which can be very expensive to retail accounts. And all that stuff's illegal and it's in the public record too. So I'm not calling anyone out, <laughs> but yeah, that happens all the time. So that would be a slotting fee essentially. And it's prohibited under most states law uh, because you're not allowed to uh, unduly influence the retailers here. And, so, and the reason behind that just real quick. Yeah, is, that's what I was going to ask. Why that? Why for alcohol and not for food? Yeah, so that goes back to kind of the saloon concept where the manufacturer of a whiskey back in the dusty old dirt road days would manufacture as much whiskey as possible. And then they would have a beholden retailer either wholly owned by them or, or plied with, with bribes essentially to sell as much of that whiskey as they possibly can, you know, forget about temperance, don't worry about consumer choice, just move as much of this whiskey as you can. And one of the stated goals behind most of these laws is temperance, in fact. So that kind of concept, you know, the pushing of alcohol uh, kind of without regard to the detrimental effect that it can have, all, almost all states, I think all states have found that temperance is, is an extremely important concern. Although the Ninth Circuit did call it into question and say that it's unclear whether it's a um, whether there's any evidence that these regulations have uh, furthered that interest. Hmm. Do you think that with the regulation of marijuana, that the regulation of beer will diminish? So it'll, I mean, in other words, you know, they're focused now on all these, or even like, you know, these, I want to call them psychedelic, you know, all the, the, the heavier drugs that they're talking about regulating. Does beer now become a, you know, it's really not that big deal, or you think it'll 
be subject to more regulation? I mean, what, how do you think that's going to play together? I think it's going to largely stay the same. I mean, we as Americans have a really weird relationship with alcohol. Um, and it's because it's very dangerous, right? Uh, you know, there are people whose lives are ruined with it. There are people who die in drunk driving accidents. So right. it is a dangerous product. But I will note that this three-tier system that I mentioned earlier is pretty much unique to just alcohol. The states that are regulating marijuana are, are not going with that same model. Mm -hmm. um, one of my colleagues is an expert in marijuana law. I'm not, but um, I don't think it's going to be changing too much um, structurally. I think that you're going to see it still regulated very, very heavily. And and what so what kind of interest do you get from the students? Like, is this something that a lot of kids, or I shouldn't say kids, students, <laughs> adults, are now seeking to specialize in? Or is there a big specialization of it? I, I really had never heard of it before. So it's I know it's a weird thing. It's like I tell my students, if you get a JD, you know, you can pave your own path. And I mentioned there's a woman in Texas who practices equine law. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> but um, I think there is tremendous interest from the students. My class in the summer, it's always, I always offer it in the summer, is always, is always relatively full. Um, a couple of my students have gone out and are now either working in or have developed practices representing breweries. One of them got like a big law job where she's going to be representing the other side. So I'm kind of disappointed in her, but I understand the allure. Um, but yeah, there there aren't that many people who really specialize in it. And there's plenty of good business lawyers um, who would probably be able to figure this stuff out over a long period of time. But if you're a brewery who's operating on a deadline on a relatively shoestring budget, because none of these breweries are opening up with tons of money, right? it makes sense to go to somebody who knows precisely what they're doing and can do it in short order. So is there a need? Yes. I think we've seen more in California. Um, I think there's maybe four to five attorneys or law firms that are specializing in, in representing breweries, hmm. um, but there's always room for more. One of the fun things of my beer law class is uh, the the executive director of the California Craft Brewers Association, which is the trade group for all craft breweries in California, always comes as a guest speaker. And the last time he was there, the last four times he was there, I should say, one of the first things he says is, thank you for being here. We need lawyers, <laughs> we need lawyers in this industry who understand how this works because it's an archaic, weird, weird environment. And, and you can only learn it through hard study, really, because it's it's really different than anything else. And, you know, what I love, to your point, when we very first started, like this idea of tentacles, that there's all different areas that kind yeah. of coalesce around this. And your brother, is he still involved with beer? Oh, yeah. No, he runs a brewery down in L.A., also Gundo Brewing Company. It's uh, the best brewery in the world, if you ask me. What's it called? <laughs> but yeah. El Segundo Brewing Company. Okay. Oh, El Segundo. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got yeah. it. <laughs> so uh, he's still doing that. Things are going great for them. They're 11 years in now. But, you know, they kind of hit it right. They hit it in 2008 when the, the boom was starting to happen. Mm -hmm. And then it got really crowded in the market. And because of some of the reasons that I've told you about, not and also including COVID, we've lost, you know, several hundred breweries due to those kind of market barriers that I mentioned. It's just too hard to get into grocery. Same. And, you know, you're, you're not making a lot of money if you're a brewery that goes into grocery and, and distribution because the distributor is taking 30% off the top. So it makes more sense to sell as much as possible to the directly to the consumer because you pocket that whole profit instead of losing that 30%. But especially during COVID, it was really, really hard on a lot of the breweries. Uh -huh. And a lot of them just kind of dropped off, you know. And with the crowded market, quality is now the essential thing, right? It used to be you could sell craft beer, like it would fly off the shelves no matter what. 
ish. Yeah. <laughs> but now people are very people are much more um, kind of picky on what they're buying. And if it's if you have bad quality, they'll just never return back to your your brewery because there's so many choices out there. Interesting. This is yeah. this has been enlightening. I've I've learned. I, I want to practice craft brewery now. Beer law. <laughs> it's so fun. I mean, <laughs> people really laugh, fun. right? It's I remember when I when I interviewed for this job. So yeah. you know, they, we talked about the main areas I'd be teaching, and they're like, "Well, is there anything else that you'd like to teach?" And I mentioned craft beer law, and I remember them looking at me like, "Is that like wiffle ball law or something?" Or, or what is that? <laughs> but I was like, "No, I promise it's a thing." You know, it was a the beer market was one hundred and sixty two billion dollars last year, and craft wow. was like twenty. Oh Craft was twenty three point nine billion or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a big industry. And my, uh, my that my friend, a good friend of mine, has a has a hops ranch and has had it for like seventy years up in oh, yeah. the United States. So I was so just out of curiosity, what what other courses do you teach? I'm just do they complement this or is it just um, an interest? I teach civil procedure, so not too much crossover there. Um, okay. Although I did make one of my larvae articles a Civ Pro based article. Uh, I teach PR. So yes, I do bring in brewery questions on that one. Uh, I teach legal research and writing. And so I oftentimes use beer that's a problems. Good topic, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, that's kind of my, those are my kind of four yeah. areas, craft beer, law, Civ Pro, PR, and uh, legal research and writing. Hmm, interesting. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I think this is really interesting. And you know what? Hopefully with the listeners, we'll get some more um, craft beer attorney specialists out there. That'd be great. They can go peruse, you know, on SSR and I have a bunch of articles posted up there on this very topic. So it's kind of fun. Oh, that's great. And you know, we'll post them on our liner notes with the podcast. So thanks so much great. for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day.